Hey, listeners, this is Nico here. We at So To Speak have been bringing you free, free speech discussions for over a year now, and it's truly been our pleasure sharing these conversations with you. If you enjoy what we do here, please consider supporting the podcast by supporting the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. We're wrapping up our fiscal year at the end of this month. You can donate by going to thefire.org slash donate. But if now is not the right time for you to make a donation to FIRE, you can also support the podcast by simply leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also support us by sharing the podcast with your friends on social media. It helps us get more ears on the show. And speaking of the show, let's get on with it. Welcome back. I'm Nico Perino, and this is So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. On June 15th of this month, we marked the 100th anniversary of the passage of the Espionage Act of 1917. For those of us that care about free speech in America, the Espionage Act has often been a cause for concern as it has often been used as a tool to censor. The act, when passed, made it a crime to, quote, willfully cause or attempt to cause insubordination, disloyalty, mutiny, or refusal of duty in the military or naval forces of the United States, close quote. Or to, quote, willfully obstruct the recruiting or enlistment service of the United States, close quote. And how has this manifested itself? On March 10, 1919, in Debs v. United States, the Supreme Court upheld the conviction of socialist and presidential candidate Eugene v. Debs under the Espionage Act, all because he made speeches opposing World War I. In the same year, in Schenck v. United States, the Supreme Court upheld the conviction of Charles Schenck for mailing literature opposing the draft. It was in this case that Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote that not all speech is protected by the First Amendment, giving us the often misapplied and misquoted example of falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater. In subsequent years, the Espionage Act has been used less to prosecute wartime dissent and more commonly to charge those alleged to reveal state secrets, people like Daniel Ellsberg, Edward Snowden, and most recently, reality winner, who is an NSA contractor who allegedly sent confidential documents to the online news source The Intercept relating to Russian interference in the 2016 elections. FIRE actually has a cool visual timeline of the history of the alien, sedition, espionage, and related acts, which can be found at our First Amendment library at firstamendmentlibrary.com. I definitely encourage you all to check that one out. But before you do check it out, we have a fascinating conversation in store for you today with this episode. We are joined again by University of Washington scholar Ron Collins. He's been our guest on two episodes of So to Speak thus far, most recently in last week's episode about the Supreme Court's decision in Mattal v. Tam. We also interviewed him last year for an episode about the trials of comedian Lenny Bruce. Today, we're bringing him back on the show to discuss the Espionage Act of 1917 and its legacy. 
On the 100th anniversary of President Woodrow Wilson's signing of the act, that was June 15th of this month, Ron wrote a post for his First Amendment news series on concurring opinions about the act and included some fascinating information about its history and also commentaries by some of First Amendment's leading scholars, people like University of Chicago professor Jeffrey Stone, who has also been a guest on this show. We recorded this interview while Ron was visiting Fire's Philadelphia office. He was visiting to speak to our interns. And the first 20 minutes or so of this interview actually isn't about the Espionage Act at all. Just before Ron traveled to Philadelphia, he sent an email asking our intern coordinator if he could assign the interns to read Justice Hugo Black's dissent in the case in Ray Anastopolo. And I wanted to investigate why, because... Ron came to speak about Lenny Bruce, and here he is asking the interns to read an opinion in a completely unrelated case. So I'm going to start with that investigation. We're going to ask Ron Collins why he wanted the interns to read in Ray Anastopolo. I bring you Ron Collins. Ron Collins, thanks for coming on the show today. Nico, it's great to be back. Thank you for having me. So I want to actually start not talking about the Espionage Act, because I got an interesting email from you over the weekend. You were in town today speaking to our interns about Lenny Bruce, as you do uh, when we have a new intern class come in. But you sent an email to our intern coordinator and to myself asking them to read a dissent from Justice Hugo Black in the case in Ray Anastopolo. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. You are. And you said you wanted the interns to read this before your talk and that you wanted to discuss it before you gave your talk about Lenny Bruce. Because you wanted to test, as you put it, their First Amendment steel. This isn't a case that many people have heard of before, uh, in particular the dissent from Justice Hugo Black. But it's something Justice Hugo Black took great pride in. I saw online that this is the dissent he wanted read at his funeral. Yes, it is. Why is this case so important? And a follow-up question, why does it test people's First Amendment steel? Well, let me start from my own experience. When I was in law school, we were assigned to read Enra Anastopoulou, and I read the majority opinion. It seemed to make sense, and I read the dissent, and not only was it well-argued, but it was so inspirational. And I, I maybe if there was any kind of First Amendment aha moment in my young life, it was that. And there was that closing line, uh, we must not be afraid to be free. Didn't you write a book with that title? I did. I did with Sam Chaltain. I did a book uh, titled uh, We Must Not Be Afraid to Be Free. And at first, I was, rest as any young person, very moved by that incredible dissent that Hugo Black wrote and by that incredible line. And then as I got older, I thought, well, why would anybody be afraid of freedom, right? I mean, freedom is something like not, you know, it's like you like ice cream, right? You know, why would you be afraid of freedom? And then as I thought more about it and I taught more about it, I thought the reason we're sh we would be afraid of freedom, a fear we have to get over, is that to defend the First Amendment it means that we have to be willing to take certain risks. If you're risk-averse, you cannot defend the First Amendment. The First Amendment isn't a get-out-of-jail card. It isn't a play-it-safe card, all right? It asks us to make certain concessions, to take certain chances, to experiment with certain things, to tolerate certain things. And that's why 
one would be afraid to be free. And that's, you know, perfect context for the discussion we're going to have today about the Espionage Act. But before we move on to that, what's the context in which Justice Hugo Black wrote his dissent? What happened here to Mr. Anastopolo? George Anastopolo, take it back to the 1950s, all right? The man serves proudly uh, for, the, for his government in the Second World War. Uh, then he comes to the University of Chicago undergrad. Then he goes to the University of Chicago Law School. He gets a PhD. He passes the bar exam. The man's a fairly conservative man. And um, by all stretch of the imagination, he was a very conservative man. But it's the early 50s. The McCarthy era is still very much in vogue. And um, when they ask him what he thinks some of the most important principles of American democracy are, he says the right to revolution guaranteed by the Declaration of Independence. He says, he says in his write-up for the committee, the Bar Review uh, uh, Committee on Character and Fitness, I think it's called, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and thereupon to establish a new government. This is how I view the Constitution. He said this in, in the context of discussing other things that he thought were important constitutional and principles. So here we have a man being straightforward, being candid. The people interviewing him, they knew him. They knew he was conservative. They knew he wasn't a, a communist. They knew he wasn't an anarchist. They knew nothing could be further from his mind uh, than uh, defending um, ideologies like that. Yet when they asked him, are you a communist? And they asked him questions related to that. He said, in effect, none of your business. Right? If you have something against me, tell me. But my political beliefs are my beliefs. They're not yours. How I associate with whom I associate was what I think. Those are that's for me. That's not for you. You're the government, all right? And so he refused to cooperate. And George Adenstoplo, after he had graduated from law school, had been offered a position at a fairly good law firm. All right. He had a wife. He was top of his class. He was top of his class, yes. I believe Mr. Bork, Robert Bork was in that class as well, as was Ab Mikva, a famous federal judge, a man who'd go on to become a famous federal judge. And so um, the bar uh, admission denied him uh, for his refusal to cooperate admission. The Illinois Supreme Court upheld that. And the case, he argued the case himself, his irony, right? He's not, he can't be admitted to the bar. And think of the irony, the Committee on Character and Fitness. This man is the paragon, the poster child of character, integrity, and fitness. And because he won't go along with them, they deny him admission. Illinois Supreme Court denies uh, his First Amendment claims. He didn't claim the Fifth Amendment. He claimed the First Amendment. Case goes to the U.S. Supreme Court. He argues the case. He loses it five to four. Now, when students read Justice Hugo Black's dissent, I mean, immediately you want to just sign up for the First Amendment. You want to <laughs> sign up and say, oh, where's fire? How can I join fire? Uh, you know, that's the kind of feeling it gives you. And, well, it should. What I try to explain to the interns today here uh, at the program that uh, FIRE hosts for their interns and to be one of several speakers you have is to understand to them, get them to understand why what he did was so risky. Because it gets back to my point, if you're risk averse, the First Amendment isn't for you. If you want to play it safe, the First Amendment isn't for you, all right? If you don't want to experiment, the First Amendment isn't for you. So let's make it personal. At that time, George Anastopoulos 
was prepared to take a job with a good firm making a fair amount of money. He had a wife and a, a, young, uh, a young daughter, very young daughter, I think younger than two. So th- what this means is that all of the money they've spent to send him to law school, he's not going to have. He's not going to have a job. I think most spouses would have said, and with some justification, George, they know you're not communist. Just tell them. Just tell them what they want to hear. Go on with your life. And if you want to do pro bono work uh, for groups uh, defending the First Amendment, you can do that. So from some people's vantage point, George Anastopolo wouldn't be seen as a First Amendment hero. He'd be seen as a fool. This is crazy. You're going to give it all up? Right? Why are you getting your backup? Tell these guys what they want to know and be on with your life. Now, it says something not only about George Anastopoulos, but about his wife, Sarah, that she was willing to stand with George Anastopoulos. And it was tough times. There were times where they just didn't know where their next, literally, their next meal was coming from. He was a cab driver. I mean, the guy's a JD, top of his class, passes the par, PhD, University of Chicago. He's a cab driver thereafter. This is the kind of sacrifice that one sometimes has to make to defend the First Amendment. And I tell the students when I talk to them and I tell these interns when I talk to them, unless you understand the dues, you can't be willing to pay the price. And if you're not going to be a George Anastopolo, at least be willing to defend the George Anastopolos of the world. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, Ron, because when you said, I want the students to read this decision to test their First Amendment steel to see whether they'd be willing to take a First Amendment stand, I took that because I had never read this case before to mean there's something in this case that's going to be shocking to the conscience and that's going to be outside the scope of you know, what we generally consider protected speech. Uh, but then I read this case. And I read this dissent and I saw, you know, this is pretty run of the mill censorship. uh, And the guy seems to be a First Amendment hero. What in here are you talking about when it comes to taking a First Amendment stand? I don't think anyone would have agreed in our intern class that George Anastopoulos speech was unprotected. What do you mean? But it's interesting. What you mean is, would you have been willing to do what George Anastopolo did? There was another case out of California, companion case, uh, Konigsberg versus State Bar. Uh, Rolf Friel Konigsberg was similarly situated, and his wife never forgave him. He was never admitted to the bar. Um, they had trouble the rest of their lives of making money. And I remember talking to his wife, and she said it was the dumbest, stupidest thing that he'd ever done. She'd never forgave him for it. Uh, she just thought that he threw his his law school career out, out the window. I think a lot of people would think that, and with some justification. Moreover, let me just speak, just if I can, to make the government's argument as well. You know, bar admissions are administrative cases, right? The bar has a right to inquire into your character and fitness. It's not incumbent upon them to make their case against you beyond a reasonable doubt. It's incumbent upon you. You have to, you, the applicant, have to make your case. If every time an applicant didn't want to answer a question and said, I refuse to answer on the grounds of the First Amendment, the world could become a pretty messy place. So I think this is what Harlan and the other people were thinking about. There's some merit to that argument. There really is. Do I think 
and that the dissent had it right? I do. But I think one of the things that we as progressives or defenders of the First Amendment sometimes forget or we give people the false impression is that there aren't any costs. You know, there are costs. There are costs to individuals in their personal lives, Sarah and their daughter and George and what they had to endure. Uh, there are costs. Raphael Konisberg, his wife, never forgave them. There are costs that if this becomes the rule, I mean, what if a person comes along and says, you know, they have to get a license uh, to do X or Y. And they say, um, they, somebody says, well, let's say they have to get a hotel license. Yeah. And they say, um, <clears throat> Uh, would you ever discriminate against uh, patrons using your hotel um, if uh, if those patrons were gay? And somebody says, um, I refuse to answer on the grounds of my First Amendment freedom of religion argument. How do we feel about that? And again, m- maybe the example is, is not the best one I can come up with at the spirit of the moment. But my point is this. For those of us that are defending the First Amendment, let us not speak falsely. There are certain costs. There are certain risks. And unless those of us who are willing to defend the First Amendment are willing to say, yes, those are risks, but we think it's worth the gamble, then we shouldn't be in this business. Yeah. I just want to reiterate because, you know, reading this dissent, it, it, it was insane what George Anastopolo did here. You know, he was asked by the Character and Fitness Committee, you know, what's your interpretation of the Constitution? He said, well, it has the separation of powers. uh, It has the Bill of Rights. But it also is a charter for people to more or less engage in revolution when they feel that the government no longer respects the principles enumerated within the Constitution. And that gave rise, of course, to the additional questioning, are you a communist? Are you an anarchist? And, you know. What's your political position on this or what's your political affiliation with that? And he, of course, refused to answer those questions on First Amendment grounds, despite the fact that he was a man who, by all accounts, would be respected by the Character and Fitness Committee. What he could have said to them is, I'm an American who's proud to stand on my rights. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's what George Anastopoulos. Mind you, George Anastopoulos, for those of us who knew him, I came to know him in later years. And he died in 2014, Died in 2014. He was a tough act. He was very contraire. I mean, he was like <laughs> a modern-day Socrates. I mean, he, this guy pissed off liberals, conservatives, libertarians, I mean, all of them, all right? Those are the kind of people that we need more of. We need more people to step out of line like George Anastopolo. Did he have anything in common with Lenny Bruce's comedy? I'm sure he would have abhorred it. But, you know, in the world of comedy, in the world of the bar admission, we need George Anastopoulos. We need uh, Lenny Bruce's. And so that's, and yet these people are so radically different. And that's so wonderful about the First Amendment. It's a tent so big that you could have someone like Lenny Bruce and George Anastopoulos who have nothing in common except freedom. Mm-hmm. And there's, I don't think we should just gloss over how eloquent this this dissent is from Justice Hugo Black. As I said, he wanted this read at his funeral. He was he was uh, told by another justice, I forget which justice, that this would immortalize uh, George Anastopolo, and it has. We're here, you know, three years and after his death. I just want to say him. to all of my colleagues who write in the First Amendment area and who teach in the First Amendment and who write casebooks in the First Amendment. 
please, please, whatever you do, make sure you include Justice Black's dissent in In Re Anastopolo. Mm-hmm. And it has and has some commentary about the bar itself in yeah. it. I mean, the bar is this interesting institution. It's private in a certain sense, but it's it's governed, granted government authority to choose who is admitted to practice. And he, he says in the dissent, in the penultimate paragraph, to force the bar to become a group of thoroughly orthodox, time-serving, government-fearing individuals is to humiliate and degrade it. Powerful language. He talks here about, of course, George, George Anastopoulos' initial statements regarding revolution uh, that raised the eyebrows of the Character and Fitness Committee. He said, this country's freedom was won by men who, whether they believed in it or not, certainly practiced revolution in the Revolutionary War. And finally, one of the, my favorite quotes from this dissent is when he talks about um, the balancing test, the bane of our existence in the First Amendment world. Justice Hugo Black writes, if I ever had doubted that the balancing test comes close to being a doctrine of governmental absolutism, that to balance an interest in individual liberty means almost inevitably to destroy that liberty, those doubts would have been dissipated by this case. Yes, indeed. I mean, this is just, a, for any variety of reasons, just such a wonderful opinion. And, you know, it was in the days before law clerks wrote opinions, or at least, you know, this one, uh, you could be sure that Hugo Black, from beginning to end, penned it. By the way, what's also amazing about the case is there are very few citations in the case. I think there's only a couple, uh, you know, citations to cases. So unlike the modern case where every four sentences there's a citation or a quote or what have you, uh, you know, this is all written, was probably written most of it out, in, my guess is in longhand. Uh, and uh, it is uh, one of those phenomenal moments in our First Amendment history. And so thank you for, uh, for sharing it with our audience. It was a statement of principle and a reminder that we must not be afraid to be free. Uh, yes, uh, and that's the title of a book by Ron Collins and Sam Chaltain, if I can put that out there, Oxford University Press. So let's turn now to a situation where there were many in America who were afraid to be free because war was at our shores. I'm talking now about World War I and the Espionage Act of 1917 that came out of that, uh, that more or less criminalized dissent of the war, from the war uh, based on the theory that that dissent uh, would compromise the war effort and be a tool for enemies. Uh, this is the 100th anniversary of the Espionage Act of 1917, which was signed into law on June 15th, 1917. And Ron, uh, you're a scholar of the First Amendment. You run uh, the First Amendment News for Concurring Opinions, which is an excellent weekly, I believe it's weekly, right? Wednesdays, yeah. Wednesday, Mm -hmm. digest of what's happening in the First Amendment world. And you had a special one to commemorate the 100th anniversary in which you got um, many contributors to contribute their thoughts about what the anniversary means. And we'll get into some of those thoughts. But I want to start by asking you to lay out what the Espionage Act of 1917 is and what it does. Well, first of all, uh, let's take go back a, a century. So we were just talking about a 2017 opinion, uh, the TAM opinion in 2017. So let's turn the clock back 
1917. So just imagine a president who's uh, very arrogant. Imagine a president, if you can, who wants his way. Imagine a president who wants to say, uh, this is what will be legal and this is what's not be legal. Imagine a president who wants to ride roughshod over the press. Uh, what would that president look like? Um, hmm. Would he be a Democrat? Would he be a Republican? What would he be? He would be Woodrow Wilson. He would be a Democrat. (laughs) And unless I'm mistaken, he's the same man that nominated uh, Louis Brandeis, the Supreme Court. But he was a man who really had a one view and one view only of uh, entering into the war. And uh, those who disagreed with him, uh, he was willing to use all his presidential muscle, along with Congress, uh, to silence uh, those dissenters, to silence anarchists, to silence communists, to silence socialists, to silence anti-war people, to silence um, magazines and newspapers. What's amazing uh, is uh, that despite all of the hysteria of the time, much of which was created by Woodrow Wilson and its administration, what's amazing is is that uh, some of the things that he had proposed uh, were rejected by the Congress on First Amendment grounds. But in short order, um, what was passed was the SB- well, actually, actually, let's let's before we move on to what was passed, mm-hmm. which is important. I want to read a clip that you have at the top of your First Amendment news post from Woodrow Wilson's State of the Union address on December 7th, 1915, when he asks for this law to be passed. And you say that Woodrow Wilson uh, didn't like dissent from his position on the war, which is funny because his position on the war had changed at this point. But anyway, he says in the State of the Union, And it's going to take me a second to read it because I'm going to read two full paragraphs. There are citizens of the United States born under other flags, but welcomed under our generous naturalization laws to the full freedom and opportunity of America, who have poured the poison of disloyalty into the very arteries of our national life, who have sought to bring the authority and good name of our government into contempt, to destroy our industries wherever they thought it effective for their vindictive purposes to strike at them and to debase our politics to the uses of foreign intrigue. I urge you, speaking here to Congress, to enact laws at the earliest possible moment and feel that in doing so I am urging you to do nothing less than save the honor and self-respect of the nation. Such creatures of passion, disloyalty, and anarchy must be crushed out. So that was him. Asking. Who are these people? Immigrants. Immigrants. This is a president dissing immigrants. These people come here. We give them the best of everything. And what do they do? They turn against us. I mean, forget illegal immigrants, all immigrants, legal, legal you know. Um, and so you see this hysteria building here, all right? You know, the scapegoat, the vision, the immigrant, the maverick, the dissident. The anti-war person, Uh, yeah, there were some communists, and yes, there were some socialists, and yes, there were some anarchists, but there were just a lot of people that didn't like Woodrow Wilson and didn't like what he was doing, and that they just thought that this whole war thing was just nothing more than yet another plot uh, to fill 
uh, the coffers of the well-to-do on the backs of um, uh, of, uh, of Americans. And uh, so the Espionage Act is passed, uh, nine provisions. It contains nine provisions. Um, and the key, the two key words in the act were national defense, right? And we're, of course, national defense is never defined in the act. So if you obtain and use information, you obtain information and you use it having to do with national defense, that's a crime. By the way, unless I mention otherwise, all these crimes are punishable by 20 years in jail. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it's something like $10,000. $10,000, yes. Or if you copy information having to do with national defense, that's a crime. Or if you receive, so copy information, like you copy, a, 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 in those days, they didn't have you know all the classifications we have now. Mm-hmm. But if you copied information, um, then uh, that could be a crime. If you copied it and shared it, that's a crime. If you received information and that you knew that that information involved national defense, all right, that was a crime. Um, if government officials communicated information about national defense, that was a crime. Um, and it was, if, if you did any of those things in time of war, that was punishable by death. Uh, moreover, if you use the mails to distribute uh, any uh, information that in any way interfered with the war uh, or interfered with the raising of troops or interfered with the um, uh, 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 loyalty of Americans, all right, that could be offense too. And that's vaguely and broadly defined the idea that even if you criticize the war, you could fall within the scope of the statute holds true, right? Well, there were people who did. I mean, there was a fellow who um, in a bar uh, said, you know, well, you know, uh, maybe these Germans should win. After all, all they're doing is uh, feeding the fat cats of the world with this war, something to that effect. Uh, The Justice Department prosecuted him. Now, fortunately, a federal district judge uh, 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 threw out that prosecution. But there were other examples of people opposing the war. There was a magazine called The Masses, all right? I wish The Masses magazine, maybe you could talk to people at FIRE and we can come out with a modern-day version because this magazine sounded like so wonderful. If you were a maverick, if you were a freak, if you were a poet, if you were a painter, if you were an anarchist, if you were a musician, right? Before there were hippies, there were these folks at The Masses. Uh, it was called a journal or a magazine. Uh, it was very avant-garde. And so in 1917, in August, they do an issue that's, a, quote, an anti-war issue. Uh, there was a cartoon of basically a cannon of, I believe, women at the front of the cannon and the back of the, at the end of the cannon. Um, a woman uh, who was who had her arms draped around a, uh, a wheel uh, holding the cannon and I think a little baby next to the cannon. Uh, so that was one of the things they were charged anti-war. There was a poem, a poem that was the most innocent of all poems. Um, uh, and for this, the Masses magazine was prosecuted because it was anti-war, interfering with the war, interfering with the troops. That was the alleged. And it was in the mail. And the case went to, went to court. Did it need to go through the mail, this, this anti-war? Yeah, yeah. I mean, unless you want to just hand it out to everybody in New York. But, I mean, uh-huh. if you want to get 
behind a particular borough in New York. Yes, mm-hmm. you know, you, yeah, ma- magazine was, yeah, does radio need the airwaves? Yes. Well, no, what I'm asking yeah. here is if there's someone just standing in the town square in 1917 after this law. Well, then they would have just been punished under a different provision. But this uh-huh. was, see, the reason they went, the, went for the mail is they wanted to put the magazine out of business. Gotcha. Yeah. But there are different provisions of this law oh, that yes. criminalizes wartime dissent oh, yes. outside the mail. Or, or even if you conspire with somebody or you attempt to do something. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I mean, that this magazine uh, was, quote, interfering with the military effort, you know, with the recruiting effort, uh, with national defense, with any of those things. That's one thing. But what if you even attempt? That means you haven't actually done it, but you've purportedly, or you've conspired. So, you know, the problem with this law, it was so vague. It was so overbroad. It was so ill-defined, if defined at all, uh, that it would have been very easy to um, uh, secure a prosecution under it. Uh, And that's what happened. And so the Masses case went to court. It went to the Federal District Court, Southern District of New York, and Judge Learned Hand, a young progressive, uh, presided over the case. And contrary to what most people think, although he did sustain, uh, that is, he uh, did not convict, did uh, uh, did not uphold the post office's denial of the mailing permit, um, he ruled in favor of the petitioners here who sought an injunction. The magazine sought to enjoin the postmaster general, but he did so on statutory grounds. In other words, he read the Espionage Act narrowly rather than broadly. It was an important free speech case, and there's some important free speech language, but strictly speaking, it's not a First Amendment case. And the reason is, for one reason, in 1917, there wasn't much First Amendment I wanted to ask you that question. You know, what was... Well, before we get there, we should end our discussion of what this law actually did. Uh, I think Erwin Chemerinsky, who I who I believe is at Berkeley now, right? Yes, he's the dean of Berkeley. Congratulations, Erwin. Yeah. yeah, that's a new that's a new hire. He calls this law a loaded gun. Right. Yeah. It more or less criticized wartime dissent, and in his piece on concurring opinions in your First Amendment news post, he talks about some of the cases in which this law was applied in its early years. And he, and he also talks about the Schenck case. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charles Schenck. Charles Schenck, who was found uh, in violation of this law for handing out anti-war pamphlets that were in Yiddish, right? Uh, well, yes. And the Froer case, I think, is also another one. They were in German. Um, uh, Charles uh, for, uh, were handing out leaflets. Uh, these leaflets... Um, at the most, uh, what these leaflets could have gotten, <laughs> they wouldn't have persuaded anybody. They might that have got you. Crazy might yesterday. have got you a punch in the face. Mm-hmm. Um, but and like I said, particularly the German ones in the Froerich case, um, uh, and then um, also in the Abrams case, and then also we had uh, Eugene Debs running for president, mm-hmm. uh, and he's very guarded in the terms he uses. Uh, and, of course, all of these people are prosecuted under the Espionage Act. By the way, before I forget, there have, between 1917 and 2017, there have been uh, 12 prosecutions um, under the Espionage Act. Uh, and nine of those prosecutions were brought under uh, the auspices of the Obama administration. But that's 
a specific narrow violation of the right, Espionage right. Act. It's the disclosure. The disclosure provisions, yes. The disclosure yes, provisions. Yes. And we'll get to that in a sec. Eugene Debs is an interesting case. Yeah. Uh, running for president. Right. He, and Chemerinsky outlines what happened to him. He says at one point in a long speech, right. Debs remarked that this he is, had to this be— is an, I just want to set it up. This is really incredible, audience, what's coming. Go ahead. <laughs> he said at one point in a long speech, Debs remarked that he had to be, quote, prudent and not say all that he thought, but that, quote, you need to know that you are fit for something better than slavery and cannon fodder, unquote. Chemerinsky writes, for this mild statement— Debs was convicted of attempting to incite disloyalty in the military under the Espionage Act and obstruct the draft. And the Supreme Court affirmed that that charge. Yeah, for all of you that light candles to Oliver Wendell Holmes, all right, and his great dissent in Abrams, before he dissented in Abrams, he sent Charles Schenck to jail. He sent Frowerk to jail. And most incredible, he sent Eugene Debs to uh, jail. And he Um, languished there for three years before his... uh, Sentence was commuted by Warren Harding Harding, in in 1921, after which he was actually sent to a sanitarium in my hometown of Elmhurst, Illinois. He was sent to Lindlar Sanitarium in Elmhurst, where he died. Is there a difference between living in Elmhurst and being in a sanatorium? (laughs) I think some of our listeners would would say uh, no. And I I should say Elmhurst, Illinois is where I'm from. There's also an Elmhurst in Queens, uh, which I guess is where Antonin Scalia grew up. All right. So, yes, I mean, uh, uh, Erwin Chemerinsky was right when he said it's a loaded gun. Uh, I mean, the other contributors to that issue were uh, Jeffrey Stone, Derek Bambauer, uh, and uh, Stephen Vladek. And the takeaway from all of these folks um, is is that these provisions, uh, which have not, if anything, they've been in some respects expanded by the courts over the years. Congress has never sought fit to come in and rein them in. Uh, And so in any of these areas, uh, there's incredible latitude for major government abuse. And uh, in the early days, uh, even the Supreme Court prior um, uh, to Justice uh, uh, Holmes's dissent in Abrams, and it was a dissent, but you know, prior to that, the test, and this kind of gets to where we were going to go earlier, uh, that the court dealt with, Judge Learned Hand dealt with, was called the bad tendency test. And that was, at the time was, if you showed that any speech had a tendency to create uh, a breach of the law, to interfere with public morals, had just a tendency to do that, a bad tendency. That was enough to defeat a First Amendment claim. So the vast majority of cases, the vast majority of cases uh, prior to the clear and present danger test, uh, the vast majority of those cases um, lost under First Amendment. And so it really wasn't much of a test for Judge Learned Hand to use in 1919. And so he used statutory interpretation to to protect the First Amendment. Yeah, in 1917... There weren't robust First Amendment protections. I mean, the First Amendment jurisprudence didn't really develop until decades later. Well, yes and no. There was a terrible guy, the worst of all of the First Amendment villains, uh, Anthony Comstock. uh, Mm, And his Comstockery. Yes, and Comstockery and the man who was very righteous when it came to anything that was prudish. Uh, A man I discussed uh, 
much about with uh, Jeffrey Stone in our podcast about his book, The Sex and the okay, Constitution. Well, a wonderful mm-hmm. book. I strongly recommend it to folks. But in any event, uh, uh, so in response to that, there's something that was called the Free Speech League was started in the late 19th century, early 20th century, led by Theodore Schroeder. And so before any of these guys, Zachariah, Chafee, Holmes, Brandeis, all of these guys came on the picture, there was a lawyer, First Amendment lawyer, and there was a group called the Free Speech League. Uh, and um, there was also another lawyer named Gilbert Rowe uh, who played a very significant role. And Gilbert Rowe, who was the Free Speech League, was the attorney for the masses case. So yes, there were attorneys out there. Yes, there were groups out there. But the momentum really didn't start until after 1990. Yeah, but these groups were out there recognizing that First Amendment protections didn't exist, or at least as they wanted them to exist. So their raison d'etre, so to speak, was to expand them. Oh, I yeah. mean, you know, you know, the Free Speech League being a predecessor to the ACLU. Right. You know, the ACLU came about, what was it, 1921 or 22? I think it was a little later. Yeah. yeah. You know, and its first report being, a, you know, the fight for free speech, and then a year later, a year in the fight for free speech. And, and those groups, you know, their positions on the First Amendment were outside of Overton's window at that point. That is outside of the realm of uh, what the popular opinion thought to be protected speech, but they knew uh, that the moral arc of history bent towards justice and they were going to bend it towards greater free speech protections and had a lot of success. But it, you know, through those years, we saw uh, this, this Espionage Act of 1917 uh, was amended a couple times. Uh, we no longer see prosecution for wartime dissent in the way that we used to. But as you mentioned before, we su- still d- see the uh, disclosure provision of the Espionage Act of 1917 enforced and enforced quite vigorously during Obama's term. You said nine out of 12 of the prosecutions came under Obama. So what is your thinking there? And, you know, that provision at least gets to the term espionage. Because when I think of espionage, I think of spies. I don't think of Eugene Debs. I don't think of Shank. I don't think of this German magazine printer. But, you know, even espionage isn't the key word in the Espionage Act. The key word is, quote, national defense. But, uh-huh. you know, what is national defense, particularly in an era when you have so much overclassification, you know, of— Words uh, don't matter anymore. You know, you know. and so—but I think—one I, I, of the things I wanted to mention about the Obama administration— so, yes, I want it on the record. I voted for him the first time. I voted on him the second time. I'm comfortable with the Affordable Care Act. Yes, it does need some revision. So all of that, let's just have on the record, okay? <laughs> and I believed him— uh, on day one when he said that there was going to be an open and transparent government and it just didn't happen, folks. And this man, when it came to his administration and whistleblowers and when it came to using the Espionage Act, it's just shameful. It's shameful what he did. And liberals shouldn't be hesitant to, to speak out against people uh, who we'd otherwise uh, defend uh, because the First Amendment, I can't say it enough, and I know the people at FIRE believe in it strongly, is a, First an amendment, amendment. What's that? It's it's a it's an amendment for all people. You know, whatever your stripes are, and um, you know, we're talking about how hostile we think uh, uh, President Trump is to the press. Yes, I think he is. But you know, I mean, he still has to go a ways down the road to catch up with Woodrow Wilson or Obama. Uh, at least Obama on the uh, when it comes to whistleblowers and disclosures. So, um, and also, it remains, is is the espionage what? The Obama administration went after Jim Risen for? Uh, uh, I can't say, and boy, I'm 
Jim Risen's uh, yeah. a reporter who received leaked yes. classified yes, information. Yes, it would have been. Yes, it would have been under disclosure provisions. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, but w- what I was about to say is, is that let us not forget, without overdoing the case for textualism. But I do think t- words matter. Uh, so uh, let me put on my Justice Scalia hat here for do. a moment. Uh, <laughs> Maybe a baseball cap, but it's still. So Congress shall make no law. So the command of the First Amendment, the first guardian of it, or the first person to be mindful of its admonition is Congress. And I think it is so incumbent upon Congress when other branches of government seek to abridge the First Amendment, not to just say we'll leave it to the courts, all right, or we'll leave it to the executive branch, or we'll leave it to the people. No, it's you, Congress, all right? And if the Espionage Act and its amendments need to be revised, it is incumbent upon the Congress to do that, not just the Congress, not simply the Congress, you know. Or if the president exceeds his power when it comes to the First Amendment, it is incumbent upon at least the Congress to speak out. And I think so many times when those of us who teach law, this obsession with judicial review, that we somehow give students the impression that all of our liberties depend on courts and we forget the lawyers and we forget the role of lawmakers and we forget the role of city officials. And so I'm particularly sensitive when it says Congress shall make no law and that obligation being there. And at times over the years, not always, but at least in 1917, there were times when the Congress did push back and didn't give Woodrow Wilson everything he wanted, particularly when it came to how he would regulate the press in times of war and essentially make them beholden to everything that he wanted to do. Yeah. To be clear, the Espionage Act was the law that was used to charge Edward Snowden, yes. the famous NSA whistleblower, and uh, Derek Bombar, in his essay for Concurring Opinions, writes a bit about that. Uh, it was used to go after Daniel Ellsberg, right, in the yes. Pentagon Papers. And most recently, Reality Winner yes. was charged. The 25-year-old uh, contractor who had classified NSA uh, information about the Russian hacking uh, and sh- this woman stands to serve 20 years or more in prison. Uh, I mean, uh, I don't think she could expect a pardon if she is convicted. It's going to be a tough case to uh, uh, to win. Do I think not like she- Chelsea Manning, right? Who was right. also charged under the Espionage Yes, Act. but then. Pardoned. pardoned by Obama. Yes, yes but I somehow don't. If there is a conviction uh, in the winner case, and I hope there's not, but to be fair, it's going to be a tough case to for her to win. A very tough case to win. Uh, I don't think she can turn to President uh, Trump uh, for uh, a pardon. Um, And, you know, this brings up a point that um, uh, I believe that Jeffrey Stone made in uh, one of the commentaries he wrote uh, for First Amendment News. And that is, is that one of the things that Congress really needs to do is create certain whistleblower exceptions. So people who have classified information and there's wrongdoing going on, including unlawful, that there should be some mechanism by virtue of which that can be made uh, called to attention. And unfortunately, we're not going to find that from the courts. And I think it really takes some members of Congress with some real First Amendment backbone uh, to take this under consideration. And I think it's an important point that Professor Stone made. Yeah, well, this is something I want to discuss with you because this is a bit tough. You know, the way the Espionage Act of 1917 was applied to general wartime dissent, the shanks of the world, the debs of the world, 
I don't think there's any disagreement within the First Amendment com- community that they violated those people's First Amendment rights, uh, at least today. Uh, there isn't any disagreement. But the, the whistleblowing thing is a bit complicated because we have classified information. The government's allowed to classify, uh, mark classified certain information. Uh, it has allegedly, uh, you know, whistleblower channels or channels for people within the government to go to the government and say, you know, there is wrongdoing within the government. Sometimes those things fail. But would you consider anyone taking government information that believes that the government is engaged in wrongdoing and leaking it to the press to be not in violation of the Espionage Act or doing a good deed? Well, I, how do we par- it's just yeah. it's tough, difficult. How do we parse this? I agree with Floyd Abrams um, that um, you cannot have a government without having certain secrets. You just certain things need to be kept secret in a democracy uh, where we value transparency. The number of those secrets we'd like to think be kept to a minimum. I think it's significant to point out that over the years when the New York Times and other uh, newspapers and media entities have received classified information, there have been a number of times, including with uh, Snowden, WikiLeaks, what have you, Assange, that they haven't published. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have seen their, and in fact, uh, Floyd, here's a plug for your new book, The Soul of the First Amendment. At the end of that book, uh, Floyd Abrams talks about the importance of journalistic responsibility yes. and how certain information they get, uh, they've received, uh, really in the national interest, ought not to be made public. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's important uh, to keep in mind. Um, on the one hand, uh, the, the Constitution doesn't uh, shouldn't be a suicide pact. On the other <laughs> hand... Um, we, as a free people, mindful of what George Anasopolo has taught us, should be willing to take risks. I do think that the current system of um, protections for whistleblowers is grossly inadequate. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need uh, a much more robust system. I think there's far too much overclassification of information. Uh, so for one of the things, one of the things we can do is let's make sure that everything we stamp as classified or highly sensitive or what have you is indeed that it's just mm-hmm. not protecting somebody's ass uh, from political fallout. Uh, let's make sure that we have some mechanism by virtue of which to do this. This is where Congress with hearings and what have you can make some real uh, important uh, steps. Let's make sure that we have um, overclassification uh, kept, kept to a minimum. Uh, once we get there and once we have provisions for whistleblowers, if people want to go out and steal that information and disclose um, uh, how uh, we are working with our allies to defeat ISIS or something like that, um, certainly under certain circumstances like that, those people um, not only are not First Amendment heroes, uh, they're worthy of our condemnation. And I stand with Floyd Abrams on, on that. How you do that in the details is another matter, but um, yeah, I mean that's it, that's the that's the trouble here because Edward Snowden clearly revealed some things that the NSA were doing that were constitutionally suspect. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, he's charged under the same act where the government goes a- after Reality Winner and Chelsea Manning, where arguably what they revealed, while newsworthy didn't show any gross violations by the government. But of, it was classified. 
but it was classified. So you know, all this is classified. But it seemed it seemed like it seemed like what Edward Snowden was doing was fundamentally more important to our republic than what Reality Winner and Chelsea Manning were doing. Even as a First Amendment person, I have to say, look, when it comes to making these calls, I don't think it should be some guy in the basement in New Jersey or me uh, <laughs> sitting in a classroom making these calls. I mean, I we have to put a certain amount of trust in our national security uh, uh, representatives in government. I mean, we really have to put our, the trust of our nation in their hands and expect them to act with competence and good faith. All I'm saying is that I like to make sure that the structure in which they operate is one that is duly sensitive to national security concerns on the one hand and First Amendment concerns. Making determinations after the fact sometimes can be a tough call. Yeah. But I think even after the fact, in the Shane case, the Frower case, the Debs case, all of those cases, even after the fact, you know, it seemed that uh, the government had it wrong. I think, uh, you know, they had it wrong in the Dennis case in, in, um, in 1951, a case that went to the Supreme Court. The judge learned at hand had written an opinion in 1949, I believe it was, denying the First Amendment claim of some communists um, uh, or alleged communists in that case. Well, actually, some of them actually were communists uh, mm-hmm. in, in that case. So, you know, this is a difficult one for me to grapple with. You know, it goes back, as you were saying, to what we were talking about at the top of this podcast, George Anastopolo. You know, there's no way Edward Snowden could have known the outcome of what he did uh, in his NSA revelations, mm-hmm. you know, he knew what he was doing was illegal, but he didn't know if the Obama administration would charge him under the Espionage Act or they'd see that he was revealing some great constitutional infirmary within the the NSA. So he took a stand, which he knew would be an act of civil dis- disobedience at the time, and was willing to stand for whatever happened to him, wherever the where the whatever the chips, you know, fell. Well, you know, I, I'm willing in one part of me to <laughs> applaud him and another, uh, another respect to perhaps condemn him. Uh, look, uh, even for those of us who are staunch defenders of the First Amendment, uh, there are times when people cross the line. And, um, you know, when, it, when you're crossing the line uh, and it really does involve our national security, albeit properly defined, mm-hmm. all right, um, then, uh, you know, I think it's just a different matter. So if anything, the history teaches us Woodrow Wilson, a lot of it he had wrong uh, in 1917, and I hope uh, we learn from that lesson. And, you know, um, it's easy for people to yield to fear. And if anything, the First Amendment is is kind of a wake-up call and says uh, not that we should be suicidal, but we shouldn't, on the other hand, let fear uh, rule the domain in which we live. Yeah, I mean, and these questions, there's Derek Bombar in his essay for you in Concurring Opinions, you know, we say, you know, we've gone through sort of a trajectory of least conf- uh, controversial speech to most controversial speech. And perhaps at the most controversial speech and beyond the whistle blowing and, uh, of Edward Stone and Chelsea Manning is the speech that is in support of terrorism. Uh, Derek Bombauer talks about this in his essay. He said that the you know assistant attorney general for national security said that people who are proliferating ISIS social media could be prosecuted 
under the act, uh, the, the material support statute yeah. in that case. You know, In 2012, the government successfully prosecuted a person as a terrorist in part because he translated al-Qaeda writings and videos into English, something New York Times journalists do all the time yeah, when they're trying the, to understand. The humanitarian law project case. I mean, it's a five to four decision. I think the court had it wrong, but it was a tough call. I mean, I mean, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough call. I mean, there's a case where if it went the other way, I, I think I would have preferred it, but I would also have to say it's rolling the dice a bit. Mm-hmm. And again. And, and David Cole, who litigated that case, right. now he's the uh, legal Proud. director for the ACLU, said that he thought the case would have been decided differently if the plaintiff there uh, had actually been thrown in jail. Yeah. Instead, but that's 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 a tough question too. It's you know all of us right now are fearful of ISIS, and the question is how much speech are we willing to limit in our efforts to diminish the effectiveness of ISIS and win the war against them. Well, one of the things I would just respond to that, Nico, is that one of the th- rights the First Amendment gives us is the right to have different views about the First Amendment. <laughs> and I think we've seen some of that here yeah. today. And I think it's a good thing, because if you really believe um, that the answer is not censorship, but more speech, uh, then let us have more of it, and let us have more of it, and let us come together. And you know, our national security isn't anything that we should ever take lightly. We should always be sensitive to it. We should always be mindful of it. We should always be mindful of the a freedom that has been sacrificed in our name by our uh, men and women who've served in the military. And we shouldn't uh, do things um, to put their mission and their lives uh, in real jeopardy. And I don't think anybody who supports the First Amendment mm-hmm. has a different view. How we do it is another matter. Yeah, well, I mean, I will, I will say many of the prosecutions under the Espionage Act use under the guise of national security to suggest that the nation would be put at risk if this speech or these disclosures were allowed to happen hasn't resulted in any tangible threat to national security. The government has put forth no evidence, for example, that Edward Snowden's revelations have compromised national security. They've put forth very little evidence that you know Chelsea Manning's disclosure compromised national security. Same with Julian Assange. Uh, well, you well, should you should talk to Floyd Abrams sometime. For does, he, does he have you. a disagreement? I didn't. I, meant, I didn't mean to say Julian Assange there. I meant to say um, Daniel Ellsberg. Okay. All right. Not on Ellsberg. He was yeah. a co-counsel for Ellsberg. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. not Ellsberg. Well, in the Pentagon Papers case, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I mean it's um, which brings us back uh, uh, to George Anastasio. Isn't the great irony that this man who served in the military, who served at one of our most important uh, moments, uh, the Second World War. Uh, that this man, of all people, uh, that the government should come after him. And so, you know, sometimes it takes the people who literally fought for freedom. Uh, sometimes those are the ones, the best ones to defend it. And we, have, we work with students and faculty members on college campuses all the time who take those stands and put up those defenses. Uh, those are people who are not afraid to be free, and we, we thank them for their efforts. And I thank you, Ron, for joining me here today. Thank In you. In the words of Neil Young, Long may they run. (laughs) That was University of Washington scholar Ron Collins. If you want to read Ron's June 15th article about the Espionage Act, it can be found at concurringopinions.com. If you want to read Ron's aforementioned co-authored book, We Must Not Be Afraid to Be Free, Stories of Free Expression in America, it can be found on Amazon. And when you buy that book, don't forget to use Amazon Smile when you make your purchase. 
and support fire along the way. Finally, if you want to learn more about the Espionage Act of 1917, visit Fire's First Amendment Library for a beautiful timeline of the main events in the life of the Act. You can find it at firstamendmentlibrary.com. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, recorded by Chris Maltby, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash talk. Or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at the fire.org or call in a question for a future show at 215 315 0100. You can leave a voicemail at that number. Again, it's 215 315 0100. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Reviews, again, help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, don't be afraid to be free.